Hi everyone and welcome to this next episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by my friend and colleague from King's, Rosie Campbell, who is a professor of politics here, but more interesting for this podcast is director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership here at King's. Hi, Rosie. How are you? Hello, Anand. All the better for seeing you. And I have to say, we are in person, so it's very exciting. It's the first time we've done one in person for a long, long time. Now, we've got an awful lot to get through. First and foremost, because we're nothing if not topical, we had that mini reshuffle yesterday, and it was widely criticised because of the lack of promotion of women. Did that come as a horrible shock to you? Well, I, I mean, no, it didn't come as a horrible shock. I mean, I'm pleased that whenever we have a reshuffle, the issue of the representation of women is a media discussion. But I think paucity of the representation of women was not a terrible surprise to me, no. And just clear up one technical issue. Is it a men's shuffle or a he shuffle? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll leave you to decide that. Do you think this particular government has got a women problem? They've got a women problem with voters. For some reason, it's not very widely known, but in the 2017 and uh, 2019 general elections, for the first time in the whole post-war period, a greater proportion of women than men voted Labour and vice versa right. for the Conservative Party. So there's an issue there for sure. There was a very sort of macho culture around people like Dominic Cummings. And you've seen recently a lot of sort of attacks directed at the Prime Minister's wife, of all people. Do you think there's a particularly macho culture about this government as compared to any of its predecessors? The voter problem predates Boris Johnson's premiership. Okay. So it's not that simple. But I do agree that I think that there's a lot of sort of toxic sexism in our public debate. But as you mentioned, it's not all coming from number 10. Some of it's being directed at the Prime Minister's wife. So it's something about the nature of our times, I think. OK, and more broadly, sort of beyond politics, I mean, one of the things the Institute does is work with organisations to improve gender balance within them. Is there a sort of sectoral issue here? Off the top of my head, I'd say education, health, probably have less problems than other parts of the economy? Or is Sadly, that... that's really untrue. Education is massively dominated by women. But if you look in the leadership, it's quite the reverse. Yeah. And education, especially state secondary schools, are some of the least flexible places you can work in the country. If you're going to be in the senior leadership team, you've got to arrive for your meetings before school or perhaps after uh, childcare providers are closed. I mean, it's something that really infuriates me that actually we've got this profession that's so dominated by women and yet women find it very ha hard to access the leadership positions very often. Interesting. And has politics got its own specific problems? Here, it has. Think? And I'm really concerned that they're potentially getting worse. You know, I, I used to run a review of the Fabian Women's Network's mentoring scheme, did it for, I think, about 10 years. And right at the beginning, we were all talking about debating skills and confidence mm. building. And the last session I did was shortly after the murder of Joe Cox. And, and the women were talking about safe spaces to organise, you know, talking about difficulties within parties. So I think, if anything, I don't know if it's simply the rise of social media but I think it's become a more hostile environment in recent years politics unfortunately. Yeah no, I can see that. I don't know if you've got the data but how do we compare in terms of female representation in politics to the rest of the world? We have definitely improved over time. The IPU keeps a list of where we are and we're, we're certainly not right at the top with the countries that are at parity. But, you know, we have seen progress. And so the Scandinavians, by any chance? <laughs> well, also Rwanda. Oh, um, but yes, but if you look inside Parliament, you know, more than half of Labour MPs are women. But that's a massive increase over time. So there has been real effort to improve things, but we're not there yet. 
Just going back to the point about voters, I think I saw a recent poll that gave Labour a 14-point lead amongst women. And from that comes two questions. One, it used to be the other way around, didn't it? So A, why this shift do you think? And B, as a profession, do you think we, academics, pay enough attention to this issue in electoral politics? I've got two answers for you there, Anand. <laughs> um, one of them is there has been a considerable shift. I mean, historically, women were more likely to support the Conservative yeah. Party. But internationally, there's been this trend with women moving to the left of centre. It didn't seem to happen here, and now it has. And are we academics paying enough attention? Well, I certainly have been, but what about the rest of you lot? <laughs> well, what I'd say is I don't do electoral politics. So <laughs> don't right, you're off don't blame me. <laughs> and... Why is it the Tories seem to manage to have female leaders and Labour don't? That's such an intriguing question, isn't it? If you look on the political representation in terms of members of parliament, I mean, Labour streets ahead, but no women leader. I cannot answer why. It's very hard to study when you've got small numbers like that. Hmm. But I certainly, if I were a member of the Labour Party, it would be, I'd be asking some very difficult questions about that. And then if we turn on to questions of public policy, we seem to be entering a period of pretty high inflation. Are there particular gender issues associated with that? Are there ways in which women are more badly affected by inflation than men? There have been some studies. I think the Women's Budget Group has done some stuff on this. Well, women are disproportionately employed in lower paid, more precarious jobs. So when you get high inflation, it often affects people's food bills. um, You know, and the, the, the less well off you are, the bigger proportion of your spending is your food, for example. So single parent households, 90% women. So there are various ways in our society women are financially less well off. The financially less well off are hit harder by inflation. They have got less discretionary spending to accommodate and they Mm. can't change their spending patterns so easily. So yes, women will be hit harder overall. So the Policy Institute here has done some interesting sort of survey work on attitudes to inequality. And the one thing that seems to resonate is place. And something that doesn't seem to resonate are different characteristics of people. So there's more interest in the levelling up agenda in terms of place-based inequality than there is in terms of, say, gender inequality. Does that concern you that we seem to have sort of forgotten everything else now talking in favour of sort of regional inequalities rather than other forms? No, it doesn't concern me, but I do think there's an intersectional element. Place is really important, but our experience of place is gendered. I've said already that women are more likely to be in insecure, Mm. precarious work. Where those women are employed in those sectors is more often in poorer parts of the country. So if we just think of levelling up has has nothing to do with gender, then we're going to miss the fact that some of the poorest people in our society are women. How are we going to level up? If we don't take a gendered lens, it's not going to work. And it does occur to me that we, we spend a lot more time talking about sort of sports facilities in the context of le- levelling up than we do about things like childcare that you mentioned before. I mean, it does seem slightly strange. I mean, it makes me want to bash my head against the table, to be honest. You're going to punch me. It's not your fault. (laughs) But I mean, childcare's core infrastructure. We know that it is essential to employment. We know it's essential to economic growth. You know, it's nice to have good sports facilities. It's important. I don't think you can argue it's core infrastructure in quite the same way childcare is. It's just so incredibly frustrating. On the surface, at least, the pandemic and the increase in home working was an opportunity for us as a society to give us that sort of flexibility. Am I being hideously naive, sort of off the top of my head, and I thought, okay, those sorts of issues would have been easier to resolve in a home working environment than in a having to go to the office five days a week environment. Is that true? It's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. The flexibility is fantastic, but a lot of what parents need is predictability. They need to know if my kidney's picking up at six, I've got to leave. And if what working from home means is that you're always on, that does not help. 
I'm worried we might end up with a three-tiered workforce. I'm worried we might end up with a three-tiered workforce. People are mostly in the office who probably will be more often men. Hybrid workers and remote workers. The remote workers might be in suburban hubs. They might be on temporary contracts. And actually, we could exacerbate the situation. We're only going to make best use of this if we evaluate what people actually do rather than whether they're physically present and whether we have some boundaries around work and life and balance. There are always times when work has to come first and you're, you're in an emergency situation. But if it's an always, always on culture, there are many people, more often women, but women and men, who just find they're not able to progress in their careers. Interesting. And just turning back to politics, you've just written a really interesting paper for the Fabian Society about the difference that female politicians make. And part of that is based on perceptions that some female leaders, Angela Merkel, for instance, have done better than some male leaders. Can you just talk us through a bit what well, your findings were? I mean, were? some of you might remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a, a swathe of articles suggesting that women leaders were handling the pandemic better. It's a little bit concerned about that because it's quite small numbers we're extrapolating mm. from. But I think what we can say is that when you have more women leaders in politics, you tend to get issues like health and education given higher priority. You tend to get lower levels of corruption. And what I was saying in that piece is, we don't know if that's just because fairer systems lead to more women leaders, mm -hmm. or if the women leaders themselves are generating that change. I think we need to think about the representation of women as the symptom of a healthy democracy. And when we think about it that way, we expect to see women leaders. And that, that's my approach to the problem. And presumably representative is sort of symbolically important as well for girls to see women. Oh, it's so incredibly I mean, important. I always hark back to a study that Esther Duffalo did some time ago looking um, at Indian villages where randomly a woman leader was allocated. And in mm. those villages where there was a woman leader, young girls' aspirations increased, but crucially their parents' aspirations for those girls increased too. Role model effects so, so important. I'll do a little shout out for my home state of Kerala now, which is a matriarchal society where women sort of seem to run everything. That explains a lot about you. <laughs> it does seem to me that in politics, there are certain posts that women don't seem to do. I think Chancellor of the Exchequer, for instance, is that just sort of a coincidence because we're dealing with a small N or is there? I don't think it's coincidence in that as women have progressed into these jobs, the hard subjects have always been those that women reached last you know right. women can be stereotyped at being good at education and the softer things when it comes to money and foreign policy it takes longer but we are getting there women are starting globally to, to occupy those positions more often but it, that's just the way it goes yeah it's interesting isn't it and insofar as dual the global institute is concerned what plans do you have going forward well, we want to accelerate the pace of change. We think there are lots of organisations and individuals who really are spending time and resources trying to push more women to leadership positions. But we're not working well enough together and too much of what's done isn't based on good evidence. So, for example, implicit bias training it can be useful, but you can just think, tick, I'm not mm. biased anymore and just go on behaving as you were before. So we know that initiatives like fair recruitment and promotion practices that really are gender blind matter. And what we're trying to do is bring that evidence into the hands of people who can make change. So we can just speed things up. I want my two daughters not to have to think about this. I want it just to have been dealt with by the time they're in right. the workplace. So that's our goal. And people who want to work with you can just contact you. Oh, yes, of course. I'm always here to, <laughs> glad to hear from people who share, want to join in the fight. And, and the final thing is you've always been one of those academics whose work extended beyond the academy. You've always been one of those academics who engaged with non-academic audiences. Do you think that's something social scientists should do more of? I think it's a moral imperative. I really do. I think for all of this evidence to be behind academic paywalls is a huge problem in society. And I actually think it's some of the fuel of the anti-vax movement, for example. If you try and find out 
good scientific research sometimes mm. it's really hard to actually just access those papers it's much easier just to find some blog that's not evidence-based at all we have a moral duty all this money time resource spent finding out what i believe to be <laughs> evidentially based research that or otherwise known as the truth should be shared should be accessible should be debated should be in the public realm well i have to say you do a fantastic job at doing that and it's been really really good having you on this podcast rosie thanks ever so much thank you for having me 